structure it to an outline per se. Um, this is a bit of a fatherly talk, I guess. Just don't call me father. <laughs> Third John, I want to read the whole letter. It's only 15 verses long. Says the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his name's sake, taking, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We, therefore, ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, but he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Obviously, we have here a very personal letter from the Apostle John. Many of you knew my father. Uh, he passed away about five and a half years ago. It's been a long time, but he was the pastor of this church for 29 years, if I recall correctly, uh, as his eldest son and uh, co-pastor for nearly 20 years, I can say that I knew him pretty well, and although he was not a perfect man, uh, he was a good and a godly man. My dad was a very gifted surgeon. He had steady hands. He was excellent in the field of diagnosis. Uh, many of you may recall uh, Keith Morton, our first deacon. He was in hospital with an emergency many years ago, and the doctor misdiagnosed him. And my dad happened to be visiting at the time, and he recognized the error. He made the correct diagnosis, and he saved Keith's life. And Keith was forever thankful for that. Unfortunately, his surgeon's hands did not translate into a working knowledge with tools and fixing things around the house. Uh, I'm sad to say that all of his sons inherited his ability to make things worse by fixing them. 
and then calling the expert to fix the fix. All of you tradies know what I'm talking about. So, you know, he could, uh, and he did, perform a circumcision on my son, one of my sons, won't name any names, on the kitchen table. <laughs> he could stitch up the dog when mom ran over him with the van, uh, but his car blew a head gasket because he never gave it a service in 15 years. That was my dad. Of course, he retired early as a surgeon in his 50s, about my age right now, and he traded his white coat and stethoscope for a preacher's garb and a Bible. And he spent the rest of his years, uh, best part of his life really, the last 30 years in full-time ministry. Some of the strongest memories I have of my father is of him sitting in his old uh, black and red checkered swivel chair, which was beat up and had holes in it, and he'd be reading the Bible or another Christian book. If you caught him in the early morning, uh, he would often be kneeling and praying. He lived strictly by the rule, no Bible, no breakfast. Spent a great deal of time preparing his sermons, and he had a sense of ministry duty that he loved far beyond his years as a medical professional. Part of my father's legacy is right here in this room, in the changed lives under his ministry. Fathers, if one of your children could speak freely about you as a father, what would they say? Well, the fourth verse of this letter from the Apostle John contains a statement that Christian dads whose children uh, bear testimony to them love to be able to say, I have no greater joy than this. This is my greatest rejoicing as a father, to hear that my children walk in truth. Those words are often quoted by Christian parents who are so aware of their many failures as parents that they recognize the only reason their children are going on with the Lord is because of His grace and work in their lives. In other words, it's not primarily because of their own faithfulness or the consistency of their parenting as hard as they worked on it, but it truly is a work of God. They can see the Lord's hand on their child because their child is responding to the truth, and that brings them great joy. You really have to be a Christian parent to understand this, but once it happens, you can agree with this statement. Now, as it's written here in 3 John, this is actually the statement of an apostle regarding this man Gaius, about whom we know nothing except for what is written here. John the Apostle is writing this to him not as his physical son, but possibly as someone whom John himself had led to Christ, or if not that, certainly someone over whom uh, John had some pastoral oversight. In fact, notice in the verse, John does not just refer to Gaius, but to his children, plural, it's my children. And so this is a reference to those who were under the pastoral care of John the Apostle to some degree. 
is spiritual children. And this is the sense in which this statement is being made here. But let me assure you that it is entirely appropriate for any Christian father or mother to take these words and apply them to yourself when you see your own sons and daughters going on with the Lord. In other words, if this is appropriate for you to use when referring to someone you're discipling or someone that you've led to the Lord and they are your uh, spiritual child in that sense, how much more appropriate is it for you to use this of your birth children whom you are discipling in your own home? But notice that what gives the apostle his joy is stated in just three words at the end of that verse. It's the fact that they walk in truth. Other versions say that they walk in the truth. Four words because the Greek article is found in uh, some of the later manuscripts. So this morning, I would like to examine a father's greatest joy in this respect that his children truly are walking in truth. And I think it's necessary for us to begin by asking the question of what that actually means. What does it mean to walk in truth or walk in the truth? We have a good number of children in our church family or those who primarily live in their parents' home and rely on their parents to support them. So I want to ask you in particular to think about this question. What is truth? In a world that no longer recognizes absolute truth, where it encourages you to follow your own truth, what is truth? Remember that Pilate asked that question of Jesus Christ. What is truth? So how would you answer that question? Of course, Pilate didn't know that the very person he was asking had once said, I am the truth. Of all the human beings in history, I am the one who is truth. You remember that the Lord on the previous evening said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But then, in addition to Jesus Christ being the truth, you know that the Bible you have in your hands is the Word of God, and that is the truth. Jesus said this in his high priestly prayer. In John 17, he prayed to God the Father, and he said, your Word is truth. So the Bible is the truth of God, And the person it introduces to you as the Savior of the world is himself the truth. So what does it mean then to walk in that, in the truth? Well, you know that it's not talking about using your physical legs to move from place to place, right? It's talking about our living and the way that we live in terms of a journey that we are on. The Scriptures describe all people as being on a journey with a destination. Jesus Christ 
the embodiment of truth, said that everyone is on a journey. And he said that they're either walking on a broad way that leads to destruction or they're walking on the narrow way that leads to eternal life. And then he made this comment that there are few people, comparatively speaking, who are walking on the narrow way. You know, we're told that it took until 1804 for the world to reach its first billion people. Think about that. That never happened in the thousands of years of history in the Old Testament. Never happened in the first century when Jesus Christ walked on the earth. Another 17 centuries went by, the Dark Ages, the Reformation era, and so on, until finally, the beginning of the 19th century, the first billion people are now living on the earth. But did you know that it took just another 120 years or so for the population to reach 2 billion? And then just 33 more years to hit 3 billion in the 1960s. Today, we have crossed into 8 billion people. And that, of course, explains our crowded streets and how many people are at the airport terminals. It explains why travel is so difficult, why lines are so long. There are so many people on the earth today in just a very short amount of time. Now listen to this. Jesus said, okay, very few of them are on the right way. Most of them this morning are on the broad way that leads to destruction. In fact, how many thousands of them are sitting in churches today in this country, and they're on the broad way. How many billions are waking up on Sunday morning only to just continue their stroll down the broad way? We are on a journey. We are either walking according to the truth, according to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and what the Scriptures teach, or we are not. Well, this passage is approaching us with the words of one whose heart is just filled with joy because there are these little people who are coming along behind him, children in whose lives he's had the opportunity of influencing. And he can say of them, not that they're sinless, not that they don't make mistakes, not that they never stray, but he can say, that the general character of their lives is a journey in the truth. They are walking as best they can according to Jesus Christ and His Word. I want to encourage all of our young people here today, if you want to have a father who is honored here today, then give him the great joy of knowing that you are living for Christ. And if this has not really been the pattern of your life for some time, then now is the time to commit to it, to tell him you're making that commitment today. Say, how do I do that? How do I walk in the truth? Well, walking in the truth, first of all, means that you believe in Jesus Christ. It means that you believe in God's Word. So that really is the starting point. 
Let me urge you in these terms that when you open and you read the Bible, you should continually remind yourself that what you're reading is true. Remind yourself that God actually did these things that are recorded. That, that whole huge body of water called the Red Sea parted and a whole nation of people walked through on dry ground. That there really was a large fish that was commanded by God to swallow a disobedient prophet. And when he repented, it vomited him out. And he went on to obey then the commission that God gave him. When you read the the miracles that are recorded in the gospel about what Jesus did, remind yourself that it's all true, that these things really did take place. And then when you read the commands of God, you should say to yourself, these commands are true, and they are right. My circumstances do not exempt me from following them. These promises are true. And my failures do not exempt me from receiving them. If I repent and try again, God will be faithful to these things. And furthermore, these warnings are true. There is a hell. It is dark and fiery. It is forever. No one who ever enters that place leaves it. There's no way out. And it will be the destination for everyone who rejects the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. This is true. When you read the Word of God and a part of your mind begins to question or reason, or debate these things. Remind yourself, no, this is true. Your word is truth. Pray that to God. Tell God you believe in the Scriptures. Many of you would know the commentator Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry uh, is perhaps one of the greatest English commentators, and many Christians have a copy of his classic commentary on their shelf. Henry was raised in the home of a man who paid a great price because he believed that the Bible is the truth. In the very year that Matthew Henry was born, his father, Philip Henry, was ejected from the ministry. And for 26 years after that, he was persecuted because of his belief that the Bible is entirely the truth and nothing else is the truth in Christ. Well, when Matthew Henry was 11 years old, this is what he wrote. I love the Word of God. Are you 11 years old this morning? There are 11-year-olds in here, are they in children's church? Are you 12 years old? You want to be able to say that. I love the Bible. I esteem it above everything. I desire it as the food for my soul. I greatly delight in it, and I delight in the reading of it and the hearing of it. And I love the messages and the ministers of the Word. I'm often reading it. I rejoice in the good success of it. And then he says this, All of these were given as marks of true love to the Word in a sermon that I lately heard on Psalm 119.140. Now, whether he heard his father preach that sermon in his household 
maybe in secret to other believers, or whether he heard a minister in the Church of England preach it because his father still took his family to the Church of England to hear the ministers, even though he himself was ejected from that ministry, still took his family to church. But either way, this 11-year-old boy heard this sermon, which evidently gave these evidences that you really do love the Scriptures. The writer in Psalm 119, 140 talks about loving the Word of God. Do you love the Word of God? Well, here's how you would know. You'd often be reading it. You'd delight in it. You'd, you'd, you'd like to hear it preached. And this, this 11-year-old boy is saying, well, that's the way I feel. I, I like to read it. I like to hear it preached. That's part of walking in the truth. Young people, are you experiencing the beginning of those feelings in your own heart and soul? Are you starting to know what it is to love the Word of God? Do you find yourself wanting to read the Bible? Are you listening to the sermons on Sunday and taking notes and really enjoying it when someone explains something in Scripture that you haven't understood before. That's part of walking in the truth. But secondly, there's also this matter of really living that truth. I want to call your attention, young people, this morning to the fact that God wonderfully blesses a child who responds to Him in the way that Samuel did. When God came to Samuel at night and spoke to him, you remember uh, that Eli, the priest, told him how to answer God. So the next time God spoke, what did Samuel say? Did he say, hey, don't talk to me anymore, God, I'm trying to get some sleep here? No. What did he say? You remember? Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. He's listening. Samuel is a child at that point, but God takes note of the heart of a young person. You know, when David was just a shepherd boy, he began to respond to the Lord, and the Lord knew his heart. When he sent Samuel to tell Saul that he was being rejected from being king, he said, I'm seeking a man after my own heart. He found that heart inside of a shepherd boy. And young people... The day may come sooner than you expect when you may be in a situation where you have to decide whether or not you're going to speak up for the Lord and whether you're going to stand for the truth, even at a young age. I think that's one reason why Scripture briefly records for us the experience of a little Israelite girl who was taken captive by the Syrians. She's serving in the household of the commander-in-chief of the Syrian armies, a man by the name of Naaman. He's a leper. So you remember that she spoke to her mistress, the man's wife, about the prophet in Israel, the prophet Elisha. So just imagine yourself in that kind of a situation. Uh, you've been torn right out of your household. You're away from your family. No possibility of ever returning home and and seeing your loved ones again. So, am I going to speak up or not? Am I going to say something about the God of Israel? 
about the prophet Elisha to this man or not. Daniel was put in the same situation in Babylon many years later. So what a joy when a young person says, Lord, you speak to me and I'll listen. And I'll have you in my heart. And I'll be someone who is after your own heart. And by your grace, I will stand for you. I will speak for you even when I'm alone. Even when, when, when no one else in my classroom, when no one else among my peers is willing to step out and say what is right, I will walk in the truth. I want you to know that brings joy, great joy to a Christian father's heart. But I want to move on and ask the question, why does a Christian father feel that way? Well, quite simply, it's because he is a true Christian himself. And you can't imagine a pagan father or someone who doesn't know the Lord feeling that way or raising his children in that way, but a true Christian father does. In the Bible we have a little bit of the testimony of this young man, Timothy, to whom Paul uh, wrote two of his letters. Scripture tells us that Timothy's father was not a believer. His mother was. His grandmother was. Timothy's father wasn't. And you wouldn't expect that he would rejoice that his son was a Christian and that he believed that every word of the Bible is breathed out by God. So young people, if your father feels this way about you walking in truth, that's pretty sure evidence that you are being raised by a truly Christian dad. Now, your dad, like any Christian father, would say that he has a long way to go in order to be what he should be as a Christian. What Christian father doesn't feel that way? But in spite of his imperfections and his failures, he's nevertheless a Christian who knows the Lord. I have a friend whose father passed away some years ago, and he was terribly disappointed about many things his father did. His father was harsh and unyielding, and he ruled the home with an iron fist. But the one thing he was so thankful for was that his father, who grew up in very poor circumstances himself, had come to Christ and had taught him to come to Christ. And he could truly say, I thank God I had a Christian father. Young people, you got a Christian dad. What percentage of all the children in the world can say that? How many young people out there can say, they have a Christian father. You do. That's why he feels the way he does about you, or at least he wants to feel that way. It's because he has your very best interests at heart. And if your dad was a lost man, he'd be raising you to be a success. That would be his primary concern, if it was his concern at all. Many unsaved dads, as you know, have hardly any interest in their children except to keep them under control and out of the way and finally get them out of the house. That's terrible, but often it's true. 
That's why there are so many adult men and women who are filled with bitterness. The homes in which they were raised had no interest in their well-being. Their children were baggage in the house or worse. It's like the man who told me that his mother said to him as a child, I wish you'd never been born. It's a terrible thing. That's not your father. Your father has your best interests in mind. He wants your happiness in this life, yes, but your eternal happiness is on his heart. He's not raising you to be merely a worldly success. His primary interest isn't that you get into the most prestigious universities out there. He's not raising you to follow in his footsteps or do the things that he enjoys. All of that is fine. Don't get me wrong. He may have some interest in that. But the bottom line for him is that you know and serve the Lord. That, that's his heart about it. That's the kind of dad you've got. Wonderful. It testifies to the fact that you have a spiritually minded father and he actually wants you to do a lot better than he did. He wants you to live more closely to the Lord and enjoy more blessings from the Lord than he did in his life. And he would rejoice if you did. Now that explains, thirdly, what he's doing with you. You ever wondered why your father talks with you in the way that he does? And why he insists on doing the things that your family does? A lot of that can be answered in this verse because this is his heart. He's attempting to lead you to Christ and to walk in the truth of Christ. That's why when you live at home as a young person, he, he talks to you about these things. Now, that's not always easy. It's one thing to talk to your son or daughter when they're five or six years old. It's a whole different ballgame to have to talk to them when they're 17, 18, 28 years old. But you know, every time your dad does that, he's prayed about it. He's thought hard about what he's going to say. He's approached you with fear and trembling because he doesn't want to alienate you. Yet he really knows that you need Christ and his truth. So he gulps hard and he prays for grace and he talks to you as best he knows how. Why is he doing that? Because of this. Because he believes the truth and he wants you to believe in it. He wants you to walk in it as well. And dads, I want to encourage you this morning that sometimes your children may not come to the knowledge of the Lord for many, many years. Uh, they may leave your home without coming to the Lord. I'm sure You've seen many children from really sincere, dedicated Christian homes go through this life and leave this life and go out into eternity lost. I mean, there's no recovery of them forever. They're gone. How many godly parents have had that heartbreak? But there are also many who have seen their children eventually come to Christ. I remember a pastor friend of mine had a daughter it was very difficult to raise. She rebelled at every turn, and they thought maybe she was a Christian. They weren't quite sure, and she ended up 
running away and marrying an unsaved man. She broke her dad's heart. And he prayed for her to come back to the Lord for many years. It was only when her father fell terminally ill that she came back to Christ and accepted his salvation and dedicated her life to him. And she ended up caring for her parents in their old age until her father passed away. There's wonderful testimonies like that. And I do want to encourage any parent here, if you have a child who has broken your heart, take your broken heart to the Lord about it. Plead with the Lord right through to the end. You may go out into eternity and never know the conclusion to their story, but the Lord saves adult children long after mom and dad have gone to glory. So don't give up hope. I think I've told you the story before of William Grimshaw, the famous preacher from the Lake Country up in England. There's, uh, this is where uh, Beatrix Potter lived and had her estate. Well, Grimshaw lived in the 1700s, about the time of the Wesleys, and he was a tremendous evangelist. He filled up the old stone church building in his district with many people who wanted to come and hear the gospel as this man preached it. The problem was they couldn't all get into the building. They'd stand outside in the cemetery, around the building, trying to hear what was going on inside. Talk about an object lesson. Well, finally, Grimshaw said, i got to do something about this. So he knocked a hole in the wall of that ancient stone building, and he built a platform on the outer wall connected to the preaching platform inside. And then he preached to the people on both sides of the wall. Uh, he would preach a paragraph inside. He would pause and walk across the platform out through the hall, preach the same paragraph to the people in the cemetery. Go back inside through the hall, preach the next paragraph, walk through the hall, preach the same thing again, and Literally thousands of people came to hear this man preach the gospel. Well, he had a son. His name was John. He was not saved. John was a big drinker, pottier. Didn't care for his father's faith or his father's morals. He got involved with a girl in the neighborhood and ended up fathering a child out of wedlock. What a shame and disgrace to his father. But Grimshaw prayed for him all of his days, yet he never saw him come to Christ. But when Grimshaw died, he left his horse to John, like you might leave your car to one of your children. So John would get on the horse to ride it, and every time he got on, he would say to the horse, once you carried a saint, now you're going to carry a sinner. The day came when John was gloriously saved. Grimshaw died and never knew what God would do, but God saved this boy, and he used his horse to remind him that his dad was a saint. So don't give up, regardless of where your children are today. Pray and ask the Lord to save them, to do something powerful in their lives. But young people, this verse in 3 John explains why your parents are insistent and why they do the things that they do. They want the joy of knowing that you are walking in the truth. 
So I want to ask you in closing then, what are you doing with this great privilege? Boys and girls, young people, young adults here with Christian moms and dads, in all seriousness, what are you doing with this great privilege of having a Christian dad who is spiritually minded, who's doing his best to direct you into the ways of truth? And his greatest joy is when you take steps forward in the truth. What are you doing with that privilege? Let me give you three suggestions for what you can and you should do. Number one, you should remind yourself of these things from time to time. Especially when you are tempted to resent your dad or disobey your dad or rebel against him. Remind yourself that you have a Christian father and he believes the Bible and even if you think he's mistaken in his judgment on a certain point, he really is trying to direct your attention to the Lord. Think that way and give him the benefit of the doubt instead of imagining dad's got it in for you, trying to ruin your life. I look back at my own childhood and teenage years. There were a number of things my father insisted on in life in our family that I really resented at the time. For example, he wouldn't let, he wouldn't let me watch TV. He took all the TVs out of the house when he got saved. He called it the Egyptian. Get the Egyptian out of the house, he would say. And you know, there's no such thing back then as mobile phones, let alone smartphones. All you had was tin can phones. No iPads, no streaming, there's no internet. You can imagine that. We had four channels on TV, 7, 9, 10, and 2, ABC, right? We'd borrow or rent a TV if we were ever allowed the treat of watching something, usually the tennis. Sometimes, if we were really good, my dad would rent a Betamax video player. And so they got rid of Betamax and went to VHS, which was a mistake, by the way. And we'd go down to the mobile petrol station in Kellyville and rent a video that we could watch as a family. My dad made sure we were in church every Sunday twice whenever the doors were open. There were school things on when church had a meeting or youth group was on. The church always took precedence. And it's not as if missing church once in a while was a big deal, but it was a question of priorities. For my dad, the kingdom of God was first and the kingdom of men was second. And I remember when my parents put their foot down on some things I thought were very important to me at the time. But as the years went by, and especially when I became a dad myself, I found myself thinking, you know, my dad was absolutely right in the way that he raised me. And I think you'll discover that when you have a situation and your spirit rises up over some of those things, if you will remind yourself of the kind of dad you have and what his priorities really are and the privilege of being in a Christian home, your spirit will just back down and just let it rest with the Lord. And after a little time, you may also realize that in most, 
if not all cases, your mom and dad had your best at heart. They wanted to see the Lord's work in your life. And the decisions they made were simply in keeping with his values. Secondly, I'd like to encourage you to do what it says in Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. How does that passage begin? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is what? This is right. It's not optional. It's not dependent on whether or not you like it. It's right. How do you know it's right? The next verse quotes the actual commandment. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. And then Paul repeats the promise that it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. Listen to that. Meditate on it. The New Testament quotes those promises for children. Children, do you want it to be well for you in your teen years, in your 20s? In your 30s and 40s, do you want it to be well with you as a middle-aged person? On into your old age. Do you want to reach old age? Start with this. Honor your father and your mother. And as Paul adds in Colossians, this is well-pleasing to the Lord. The last thing I want to urge you to do with your great privilege is something that may not have occurred to you at this point. Just Pray for your dad. Pray for your father. What should you pray for him? I would suggest that you pray for him what he needs most. What does he need most? Do you know what your father's greatest difficulty is? It isn't you. <laughs> now, your dad's greatest difficulty is what? Tell him, dads. It's myself. It's yourself, right? I am my greatest difficulty. Did you know that your dad has all the same temptations that you do? Of course, he has a load of burdens that you don't have. And as he faces the world, he struggles with his flesh. He's, he's disappointed himself so many times. He has regrets about decisions that he made in the past. He has wishes and hopes for the future in his life and in his family, in his walk with God, but he's reached the point in his life where he's well aware of his own weaknesses, of his propensity to failure and sin. That's hard for him. It's hard for him week after week to read his Bible, to have his faith restored, to go out and obey the Lord. He has all the same struggles that you do, and on top of that, he's trying very hard in his own way to raise you and your brothers and sisters for the Lord. So he needs encouragement. He needs hope, like you need hope. He needs God's power in his life every day, like you need God's power in your life. He needs some victory. He needs the assurance that God forgives his sin. And cleanses him from all unrighteousness like you need for yourself. So pray. Pray for your dad's growth in grace. And as he grows in grace, you will come to have more faith in him. 
just try that. Pray for your dad and for his own growth and the way he's rearing you, and you will find that you have more faith to believe that the providence of God is overseeing and directing your dad about your life. That doesn't mean, of course, that he's going to be perfect in the decisions that he makes. But you will be able to trust the providence of God to overrule in his weakness because you've prayed that God will give wisdom and grace to your father. Let me take you to one more passage and we're done. Two verses from Proverbs 23. I want you to take verses 24 and 25 to heart. It says, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. All right, that's what you need to give your attention to. By God's grace, you need to walk with the Lord. You need to be a righteous person. If you'll commit to that, your dad will greatly rejoice. And he who begets a wise child will delight in him, in that child. Look at the next verse. Let that happen. Don't hinder that. But let your father and your mother be glad. And let her who bore you rejoice. I want to ask you about the countenances of your mother and your father in your home. Do they often look deeply disturbed? Do they often look worried? Are their faces unhappy in your conversations with them? Why is that? Are you the one who is changing their countenances to where they are not joy-filled and glad parents. All right. Let your parents be glad. God will bless you for that. Now, if you choose not to, if you're going to take the hard road that leaves worry lines in your parents' faces, remember that one day you will likely have children of your own. And you don't want to have children who will be a great grief to you someday. You see, God... God is just, and one day when you're wondering why your child has gone astray and why they refuse to listen to your counsel, your conscience may come back to you and say, think of the sadness you gave to your mom and dad. Is it not fitting that your own children are returning back to you what you gave to your dad? I want you to know God sometimes is just like that. He is just, but not always. Often he is merciful. But in any case, we want all of our young people to obey the Lord about this. We want them to bring great joy to their parents. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Let's pray. Now, Father, we are so thankful for our parents here, our godly parents. We're thankful for the influence of spiritual fathers. We pray that you would touch the hearts of any who are struggling, that they might first get their lives in order and then get their house in order so that they all might walk in truth. Father, in spite of where our culture is headed, may we 
have families here that live according to the truth of your word. And we will thank you, Father, for your grace that enables us to do so. In Jesus' name.